Welcome to the Dead Lady Show podcast. I'm Susan Stone. The Dead Lady Show celebrates women, both overlooked and iconic, who achieved amazing things against all odds while they were alive. And we do it through women's history storytelling on stage here in Berlin and beyond. And then, of course, we bring you the very best of those stories here on the podcast. Happy New Year, everybody, and welcome to our first podcast episode of 2022, and welcome to you, Katie, joining me here virtually again. Here we are virtually, so lovely to see you, though. And lovely to see you and your fresh haircut. (laughs) (laughs) How was the New Year treating you so far? It's okay. Do you know, I promised myself to be kind to my body, and turns out that as a consequence, I'm going to have to change my whole entire drinking liquid regime but it's probably for the best it's fizzy drinks we're talking about here (sighs) yes you have to drink healthy non-alcoholic drinks Hmm. healthy caffeinated beverages oh but enough of my my suffering i know i think i think you'll come through it swimmingly Mm -hmm. um and i have been on many planes and uh no trains. And I'm happy to be back in Berlin. Although I have to say I'm a little disappointed because the last task I set for myself before leaving the U.S. was to find a Maya Angelou quarter. Which we talked right. in the last episode about yeah. these new quarters coming out. The one I was focused on is Anime Wong. That's actually not coming out till later this year. But Maya Angelou's quarter came out right before I left in middle January, but I could not find one. I kept going to the bank and asking and they thought I was crazy. But so if any of our listeners have seen one, please send us a picture. I'm going to get somebody on the case uh, to get us a couple. You can and, go to um, the bank? Yeah, you and can go to the bank. for a quarter? Hello? I would like to <laughs> Well, when special coins come the... out, I mean, I was okay. going to give them a dollar and get four quarters. I'm going to give right, them two dollars and get eight quarters so I could <gasps> give one to you and one to Florian and, you know, surely someone else next here in time. Berlin would like one. Yeah, so yeah. next time. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, we uh, we have other ladies to commemorate today, and we're going to be hearing from our dear Dead Lady Show co-founder, Florian Dousens. He is an educator and an editor and dedicated to dead ladies, really. Oh, you can say that again. He certainly is. Um, he has a particular interest in being a great traveler himself. He's, he uh, is. I think he's in Portugal right now, in, in traveling ladies and exploring ladies. So if you look back over some of the episodes he's you might get a theme yeah yeah (laughs) yeah um and the lady he'll be telling us about today is is very much along those lines she was in fact a a lady with a Mm -hmm. title lady mary wortley montague which in itself is not that much of an achievement i have to say but uh she also has a very interesting aspect to her history that we can all be very grateful for because she was an early adapter of inoculation in Europe. Yay! You could even call her an inoculation influencer because of the role she played in convincing other people to inoculate themselves and their children. Let's all do that ourselves. Always. Yes. (laughs) Always a good idea. Let's hear more from Florian speaking from the stage of our beloved Berlin venue, Akud. On June 19th, 1751, in the obscure north Italian town of Gotolengo, 
12 years into a very strange exile, 61-year-old Lady Mary Wortley Montague wrote morosely home to her busy daughter, Lady Butte. This is where I apologize for my accent. I now know, and alas, have long known, all things in this world are almost equally trifling. And our most secret projects have scarce more foundation than those edifices that your little ones raise in cards. <laughs> she tried to dispel the gloom with a tongue-in-cheek story about the locals. Thinking themselves highly honored and obliged by my residence, they intended me an extraordinary mark of it, having determined to set up my statue in the most conspicuous place. The marble was bespoke, and the sculptor bargained with before I knew anything of the matter, and it would have been erected without my knowledge if it hadn't been necessary for him to see me to take the resemblance. I thanked him very much for his intention, but utterly refused complying with it, fearing it would be reported, at least in England, that I'd set up my own statue. They were so obstinate in the design, I was forced to tell them my religion would not permit it. I seriously believe it would have been worshipped when I was forgotten under the name of some saint or other, since I was to have been represented with a book in my hand, which would have passed as for a proof of canonization. <laughs> now, Mary was making fun of the Catholic veneration of saints, which, of course, they'd sort of just gotten away with uh, in England. Sure, but she was also worried about being depicted as an author. She'd already disappointed a great cardinal who'd asked the supposedly wonderful English writer for copies of her books. I was singly sensible of the honor designed to me, but upon my word, I'd never printed a single line in my life. Printed is operative because she never did publish a single word of her voluminous writings herself, at least under her own name. For a capital L lady, perhaps especially one known at all the courts in Europe, any publicity was bad publicity. Now, at this point, her letters, essays, poems, and fiction fill a, a short but still considerable stack of books, not to mention the countless letters, diaries, and memoirs lost to time or burnt by her scandalized daughter after Mary's death. Mary was born in the spring of 1689, baptized in the brand new St. Paul's Cathedral, the first child of wealthy parents, soon to become the Earl and Countess of Kingston, eager to consolidate their power through calculated marriages. After her mother died when Mary was three, she was raised by her cold grandmother and weird aunt, along with her younger brother and two sisters. When her grandmother died, her typically awful father shipped them to his Thorsby estate, where Mary was taught uh, embroidery, dancing, Italian, drawing until that was thought to harm her eyes, <laughs> and meat carving. <laughs> Taking lessons on wooden models of different cuts of meat um, three times a week. She learned much more from Thorsby's magnificent library, where she furtively taught herself Latin in order to read Ovid. She also wrote poems, but added the following caveat to her first album of them. I question not, but here is very many faults. But if any reasonable person considers three things, they will forgive them. One, I am a woman. Two, without any advantage of education. Three, all these was wrote by me at the age of 14. <laughs> now, as a woman, 
perhaps, especially one who translated Stoic philosophers for fun. <laughs> she faced the inevitability of marriage with Stoicism. Though her and her girlfriend exchanged, or girlfriends exchanged endless letters, hoping their union would be one with paradise, not hell. Or at least limbo. <laughs> A man they might not love love, but who would at least treat them okay. Mary's father had already purchased a trousseau for Mary's wedding to a, and I'm not kidding, this is Mary, clot-worthy Skeffington. <laughs> a hell if ever there was one. Luckily, though, a limbo appeared. Edward, yes. This, so this was the time of, like, wigs and sort of frilly jackets, powdered faces, you know, the fake beauty marks. Not that he's wearing them right now, but he's clearly wearing a wig. So Edward Wortley Montague, 31, and besotted with her beautifully lashed 20-year-old self. There she is. She braved writing to him herself. What? And they started plotting their very complex elopement, uh, like carriages hidden in shadows, Mary waiting on balconies, missed connections in like skeezy inns, etc., etc. Very Bridgerton. By the time they'd snuck off to get married in Salisbury, Mary would receive comparatively little money from her father, and Edward, who'd from now on legally own all her possessions and control her income, those were the rules in England, was proving himself to be jealous, stingy, and painfully indecisive. Also, she was pregnant. With her husband off to his, this is where they lived. It just happens to be where Mamma Mia is playing. Or was playing whenever this picture was taken. With her husband off to his coal mines in the north, that was his fortune. Uh, she spent her time with his more exciting associates, and by the birth of their son, who was named Edward, also like his dad, Mary was firmly embedded in London's literary circles, anonymously publishing a satirical letter from the president of the Widows Club, in which she talked trash about her seven dead husbands. <laughs> After being stuck in the country, <laughs> With a sickly baby and the shock of her brother dying of smallpox, she convinced Edward to get a proper London pad. At the court of George I, or rather his um, less dull son, who would eventually become George II, Mary could finally sparkle. She learned German, the royals hailed from Hanover, after all, and enjoying a solar eclipse, a comet, and the northern lights with the enlightened likes of poets like John Gay and Alexander Pope, uh, even collaborating with the two on a cycle of poems circulated among their friends. Then um, she caught smallpox herself. Fever rising, her whole body aching as the telltale red spots arrived. Now in the 18th century, smallpox was a leading cause of death, killing off 400,000 Europeans every year including five reigning monarchs. Not to mention many people in Africa and most of the Native Americans who came in contact with colonialists, even intentionally, as you've heard. I'm sure the blankets, right? I'm afraid I'll have to be very explicit about what exactly smallpox does. 
Her itchy spots started to fill up with liquid, joining together all over her skin, her mucous membranes painfully swollen, her throat and nose clearing up. This is the key point, right? If you survive this, you have a chance. After a week, the clear liquid turned to vile pus, oozing out until the spots started to scab up, itchier than ever, and she was left with smallpox's typical facial scarring. Her eyelashes lost forever and her eyes causing her intermittent trouble for the rest of her writing and reading life. The suggested treatment at the time, you ask? Bleeding and purging, of course, or cold or heat. All in a darkened room, the street outside spread with straw to dampen the rattle of the carriages outside. Now conscious about her new appearance, which would be airbrushed in all the portraits you will see after this, and with some at court offended by her satires, she jumped at the chance to accompany her husband and their chaplain, doctor, nurse, etc., to Constantinople, where he was to become ambassador. With the Austro-Turkish war raging, however, getting to what is now Istanbul would be tricky. Mary documented their long journey in her diary and letters, later rewriting these letters and diary entries as an epistolary work of nonfiction at the urging of a feminist writer friend. Here's just three snippets. This is her writing about this spot in my delightful hometown of Nijmegen, Holland. One of the finest prospects in the world. <laughs> this is the view. Uh, if you were here when I was talking about Mary Shelley, Mary Shelley also came here. Um, Nina Simone lived for three years just over there. <laughs> Clearly. Um, for dead ladies. Um, here uh, she is making fun of the enormous outfits uh, women wore at the Viennese court. You may easily suppose how much this extraordinary dress sets off and improves the natural ugliness with which God Almighty has been pleased to endow them all generally. <laughs> also, this letter is of a horrible length, but you may burn it when you've read enough. <laughs> In Sofia, Bulgaria, she visited a hammam. I was here convinced of the truth of a reflection I'd often made, that if it was the fashion to go naked, the face would be hardly observed. I had wickedness enough to wish secretly that Mr. Jervis, he was a court painter who painted some of her portraits, could have been there invisible. I fancy it would have, been very, it would have very much improved his art to see so many fine women naked in different postures, some in conversation, some working, others drinking coffee or sherbet, which is fruit juice, and many negligently lying on their cushions while they're slaves, generally pretty girls of 17 or 18, were employed in braiding their hair in several pretty manners. In short, tis the women's coffee house, where all the news of the town is told, scandal invented, etc. Women of her class, of course, couldn't go to coffee houses, is what you need to know to understand why she was so excited about this. Her account uh, later inspired this rather famous painting by uh, Angre. Note that Mary, during her visit, remained fully clothed. Uh, <laughs> although one inquisitive local did ask her to open her dress and show them her stays, which is sort of the corset at the time, which they believed must be some kind of chastity contrivance of her husband's. 
Now, though, Mary wasn't a fan of their nail, like pink nail polish that people wore in Constantinople, and she she enjoyed the eyeliner, but she found it a little harsh in the daylight. Um, she argued that the practice of wearing a veil allowed for greater freedom, as women could go anywhere incognito. Of course, that's sort of a limited Orientalist perspective, but when she called Turkish women the only free people in the empire, she was clearly saying something about her own desires. She likewise praised the way they handled divorce and women's finances. Her most significant observation, however, was that women didn't have nearly as many pockmarks, all due to the local practice of old ladies engrafting children or adults with a tiny bit of smallpox pus, so they developed a rather harmless case of it and then became immune. There's no example of anyone that has died in it, and you may believe I'm well satisfied with the safety of the experiment, since I intend to try it out on my dear little son, against the protestations of their chaplain, I should add, because it was against God's will. I'm patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into fashion in England, and I should not fail to write to some of our doctors very particularly about it. If I knew any one of them that I thought had virtue enough to destroy such a considerable branch of their revenue for the good of mankind. Perhaps if I live to return, I may, however, have courage to war with them. And when her husband embarrassingly was recalled and they were forced to return to London, she'd eventually sort of just do that. Their return trip was less thrilling than the way over. She'd had a daughter by then, so they were traveling with a baby and a three-year-old and a nurse and a chaplain, and a, et cetera. And eventually, they decided that while Mary and her husband would go overland, visiting uh, some Palladio villas and, of course, the Shroud of Turin, I have not respect enough for the holy handkerchief to speak long of it. <laughs> the children and their nurse would continue by ship from Geneva, arriving in England miraculously arrive, alive after six months of encounters with Spanish warships. Though English doctors um, had uh, discussed inoculation since 1700 and had been practiced in Asia since at least 1500, doctors distrusted it. But since friends of Mary's were still dying every week, she arranged to have her daughter inoculated in England in the presence of several doctors. She then showed off the girl's glowing recovery to some other women of note. And though the child would later remember the hateful faces of some aunts and grandmothers, many, including the Princess of Wales, decided to inoculate their kids too. Already furious about competing with apothecaries and surgeons, um, which were sort of amateur physicians at the time, Many physicians balked at this encroachment. As one wrote, posterity will scarcely be brought to believe that an experiment practiced only by a few ignorant women amongst an illiterate and unthinking people should on a sudden and upon a slender experience so far obtain in one of the politest nations in the world as to be received into the royal palace. Like today's anti-vaxxers, he suggested inoculation was an artful way of depopulating a country. Mary thought that ignoring the clear benefits of inoculation was criminally negligent. 
just as criminal, by the way, she said, as bleeding or purging an already suffering patient. So she wrote an anonymous op-ed, a plain account of the inoculating of smallpox by a Turkey merchant, a merchant in Turkey, not a merchant of turkeys. I should clarify. But the editor toned down her text. This is a downside of publishing anonymously, right? The murders that have been committed was changed to misfortunes that have happened, etc., etc. Afraid of being accused of witchcraft, even the pro-inoculation faction de-emphasized the treatment's origins, casting it as enlightened, scientific, masculine. Dividing her time between London and fashionable Twickenham for the next 20 years, Mary kept busy gardening, trading sketchy South Sea stock, and adopting some comfy Turkish fashions. Uh, you can see here a picture with like a turban, and there's some very loose-fitting dresses for, at the time, certainly. She also adopted a sofa which was like a long bench with lots of cushions that she could sprawl upon. I, you know, we should all adopt them, I think. <laughs> Wild idea. Um, the likes of Voltaire praised her work, but her family was crumbling. Her father and sister died, her other sister was declared mad, and her terrible son kept running away from boarding school. At 14, he changed clothes with a street urchin, uh, found work on a troop ship, only revealing his true identity when he was like, wait, <laughs> I'm on this boat now? <laughs> what? Um, and they'd already set sail, and so it'd be many, many months before he could catch a boat back from Gibraltar, where he ended up. <laughs> 14. To a friend, Mary wrote, I am vexed to the blood by my young rogue of a son who has contrived at his age to make himself the talk of the whole nation. He's gone knight erranting God knows where. Nothing that ever happened to me has touched me so much. I can hardly speak or write of it with tolerable temper. The bane of her motherhood, he grew up to be a bigamous con artist <laughs> slash MP. He also converted to Islam for sketchy reasons. Um, his life was documented in a book subtitled The Man in the Iron Wig. <laughs> her daughter, meanwhile, this is her much later in life, obviously, um, married for love, not money. She married her paradise, ultimately raising <laughs> against Mary's will, I should also note, ultimately raising 11 children Here's six of them. <laughs> With a man Mary argued against, but who would eventually become England's sixth prime minister. Distant cousin Henry Fielding sought out her patronage, and she was known all around as a wit. If you needed a poem, that's who you called, or like a wrote to, I guess. <laughs> she teamed up with her pal John Hervey, who is a um, fascinating bisexual to write some cruel verses against her now neighbor, Pope, whose letters had gotten hornier and hornier while she was in Turkey and who'd quickly turned on her on her return. She was like, you're real? Ooh, ugh. 
the resulting feud seen here in a rather more recent artist interpretation attracted more unwelcome attention. She was tired of her husband too. She would describe a suspiciously, suspiciously similar husband in one of her later fictions as follows. He had all the qualities of an upright man and no single quality of an amiable one. He was impervious to flattery, unshakably firm, but so jealous as to be perpetually mistrustful. True to his word, ungracious in his actions, tall and well-built, but with a proud air and no charm. No wonder then that she immediately fell for a visiting Italian count, literally half her age, he was 24, Francesco Algorotti, uh, who was working on an Italian popularization of Newton's optics, Newtonianismo per le dame, Sir Isaac Newton's philosophy explained for the use of ladies. <laughs> as the translation had it, which she'd assist on with notes and praise. And she wasn't the only one to fall for him. Her bestie, Hervey, remember the cool bisexual? He fell for him too. And he might have gotten luckier than she did. <laughs> when Algorotti left, uh, Mary entered the public arena with a anonymously published journal delightfully called The Nonsense of Common Sense. In its nine issues, she'd rail against the idea that women should, as she quipped, be plain in dress and sober in your diet. In short, my dearie, kiss me and be quiet. <laughs> the journal's essays argued for lowering interest rates, educating women, and a little more cheekily, replacing those very expensive foreign opera singers with robots. <laughs> Um, after two years of fruitlessly trying to reunite with Algarotti, even offering to relocate to his native Venice, the two met and Mary decided to make the jump, bringing a pair of servants and at least 465 books, <laughs> telling friends she tired of the English climate. She was 50 years old. She couldn't pin Algarotti down though. The Pope had banned his book for one, but more importantly, our very own Frederick of Prussia there he is, um, soon to become Frederick the Great, had fallen in love with him as well. There's Algorotti. Soon both men were treated for a sexually transmitted disease. But perhaps Venice proved Mary distraction aplenty. It was the era of Tiepolo, Canaletto, Guardi, Vivaldi, and since everyone went around masked, there was no need to dress up. Young men on their grand tours sought out her company, and soon she was a fixture, an attraction even. She'd scandalized these young men with her suggestion of automatically dissolving all marriages after seven years, at which point <laughs> both parties could decide to renew or part ways with their original finances. She discovered Florence, Rome, Naples, still waiting for a word from Algarotti, finally meeting when they were both in Turin. It did not end well, as she wrote to him. I have begun to scorn your scorn, and in that vein I no longer wish to restrain myself. In the time of foolish memory, when I had a frantic passion for you, the desire to please you, although I understood its entire impossibility, and the fear of boring you almost stifled my voice when I spoke to you, and all the more stopped my hand 500 times a day when I took up my pen to write to you. 
I have studied you and studied so well that Sir Newton did not dissect the rays of the sun with more exactness. I saw that your soul is filled with a thousand beautiful fancies, but altogether makes up only indifference. She moved again, first to Geneva, then Geneva, then Avignon, where she became another quick fixture, bewitching the officials enough that they gave her an ancient tower in this ruined bit, tower is no longer standing, that she could write in. She proposed affixing it with a small sign that said, with decent poverty content, her hours of ease not idly spent, yet oh how small a spot of earth is now her all. A premature epitaph, and it is at this low point in her life, she's feeling old, ugly, dull, that another Italian count offered to escort her through war-torn Europe to her beloved Venice. Now, though this man was a Saxon prince's gentleman of the bedchamber, which is not what it sounds like, um, Ugolino Palazzi would turn out to be an actual bandit. And it'd take 10 years for Mary to find out. He stole her jewels, her papers, intercepted her letters, sold her properties that weren't his to sell, and made up excuses why she couldn't travel, shrinking Mary's once grand world to a series of tiny palazzi in northern Italy. I should say that there were bright spots in this very strange decade. She started a farm slash garden. This is her sketch of it, uh, where everything went, um, planting tea and harvesting silk and honey. She was able to head to nearby Lago di Zeo to soothe her menopausal body in the healing waters at the insanely picturesque and delightfully low-key Lovere, where there were operas three nights a week, and the lakeside promenade is now named after her. When she finally escaped Palazzi's clutches for Venice, she made peace with Algarotti. Algarotti had just commissioned Tiepolo to paint Mary's favorite, Cleopatra, and some say she was sort of made to look like her a little bit. I don't know. I don't. It would be appropriation either way. <laughs> In Venice, she also showed visitors, I mean special visitors, I guess, her commode, which was painted with the spines of books of all her critics so she could shit on them every day. Though in her absence, her poems had actually been anthologized, some embarrassingly misattributed, travelers stopped seeking her out, and Venice just wasn't the same. This is where she stayed. It is now a Burger King. Just saying. Plus ça change. Asked to spy on her by her now powerful son-in-law, British officials discredited her at every turn, both with truths she wore sack dresses, which are, you know, if you're just listening to this, you're thinking, yeah, those seem wrong. But when you look at a picture, it's just a very nice dress with a waist and everything. It, it's slightly more comfortable than the other thing we saw earlier, but a sack dress. She dared to dance at her age. Uh, but they also lied about her. They spread lies. They said... Uh, she had kept this Palazzi bandit as her sex slave. They said she was pro-Catholic, that she was pro-slavery. In 1761, her husband died, and panicked that her terrible son would cause some kind of public 
scandal by contesting the will, she painfully made her way back, probably knowing that she was in an early stage of breast cancer. In Rotterdam, where she was taking a breath before making the jump across the channel, she gave her sole copy of the embassy letters to another traveler to pass on to her daughter, and if it wasn't for his quickly overnight copying these letters, those two would have probably been burnt or lost. Her last nine months in England were spent in a tight harpsichord-shaped apartment, endless visitors gawking at this scandalous blast from London's libertine past. She died age 73 on August 21st, 1762, buried the next day in Grosvenor Chapel. The next year, her embassy letters were illicitly published. Her name coyly allowed, alighted. It says Lady M dot dot Y. What could that say? And the book was an instant success. Most of her other surviving writings weren't uncovered or properly attributed until two centuries later. Some 30 years after Mary's death, Edward Jenner, maybe no relation to the Jenners, um, who had been inoculated as a child, probably also due to Mary's efforts, um, wondered why milkmaids didn't seem to catch smallpox, eventually discovering that cowpox could be used to vaccinate vax, vash, you know what, you've heard this. Um, still, he faced an uphill battle, and vaccine inequality ensured it'd take more than 200 years for humanity to eradicate smallpox, which happened in my lifetime, by the way, in 1979. Though Jenner's name is remembered more often than Lady Mary's, she did eventually receive her statues or monuments. There's one in Litchfield Cathedral and one at Wentworth Castle. If you want to learn more about Lady Mary, uh, though her daughter, again, burnt most of her writing, there's a very cute abridged edition of the embassy letters called Life on the Golden Horn, um, as well as lovely editions from Penguin Classics and Everyman's Library. The most exhaustive biography, uh, there were a lot of biographies, but they were written before the post-colonial feminist turn, so I would start with this one, uh, is by Isabel Grundy's. It's subtitled Comet of the Enlightenment. Um, it's also rather long, so if you'd like something shorter, there's Joe Willett's The Pioneering Life of Lady Mary Wortley Montague, scientist and feminist. I always like to have the lady herself have the last words, and these rather bitter ones are from two letters she wrote during her final stay in Venice. I thank God witches are out of fashion or I should expect to have it deposed by several credible witnesses that I had been seen flying through the air on a broomstick, etc. It is certain the British islands have always been strangely addicted to this diabolical intercourse, but since this public encouragement given to it, I'm afraid there will not be an old woman in the nation entirely free from suspicion. You know, wretch that I am, it is one of my wicked maxims to make the best of a bad bargain. And I've said publicly that every period of life has its privileges, and that even the most despicable creatures alive may find some pleasures. Now observe this comment. Who are the most despicable creatures? Certainly, old women. What pleasure can an old woman take? Only witchcraft. <laughs> Thank you. 
Victorian Darsons on Lady Mary Wortley Montague, recorded by Simona Antonioni at Acoud. And we'll have images of the lady herself and more info for you at our website, deadladyshow.com slash podcast and on our social media channels at Dead Ladies Show. Thank you very much, Katie. And thanks to Florian for the fascinating talk. And I'm going to take the opportunity to say thank you to some of our Patreon supporters. Yes, we have a Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash Podcast. And what we do there is we do some great uh, book recommendations with audio excerpts, sort of mini Dead Lady Show selections. We had a really fun piece for December that was kind of like an extended book guide with lots of recommendations and music and fun and glass clinking. So there's lots of fun things there if you want to check it out. And those who have so far include Anus Katoinen, Amanda Hoffman, and Claire Crossland now yucks. We really appreciate hooray. We really appreciate your support. <laughs> and thank you to everybody else out there who's listening. We'll be back again soon with another fabulous dead lady. We will. The Dead Lady Show was founded by Florian Dowsons and Katie Darbyshire. The podcast is created, produced, and edited by me, Susan Stone. And that theme music you hear is our tune, Little Lily Swing by Tritachion. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Support for this episode of the Dead Lady Show podcast comes from the Berliner Senat.